The following message is brought to you by Morgan Hill Bible Church. For all things MHBC, connect with us on social media and check us out online at mhbible.org. Good morning. I invite you to open up your Bibles, if you have them this morning, to the book of Revelation chapter 3. Revelation chapter 3. Revelation is the last book in the New Testament. The text is also in the handout you received when you came. We are in the second to last sermon in week 6 of 7, looking at these seven mini-sermons that Jesus gives to these seven churches that existed in what is now modern-day Turkey. And today we look at number six, which is to the church in Philadelphia. Well, we're going to start off by rewinding to a story from many, many years ago. It's a snowy Sunday morning on the East Coast in 1968. A nice storm had fallen the day before. And so the football fans that went to the games that day had lots of snow in the stadium, not quite as much as what happened in Buffalo, if you've been following the weather at all. Not eight feet of snow, but several, several inches. But there was one thing that the fans that showed up to this particular game, their season had not gone well. They were one of the worst teams in the league, and they were not happy about being one of the worst teams in the National Football League. And snow had fallen, and it was just before Christmas in December, and so the the PR people had decided that at halftime, they were going to do a little parade of the cheerleaders dressed up as elves, and Santa was going to come out as well, because who doesn't love elves and Santa right before Christmas? The problem was there was so much snow, the actual Santa couldn't get there. They found a guy who had happened to wear a Santa costume to the game that day, found him during the first half, brought him down, and then at halftime paraded them out. But the parade didn't work the float because it got stuck in the mud from the snow from the day before. So this guy then had to walk out to these fans who were angry whose team was getting killed at halftime. And so what did they started to do when here comes Santa Claus starts playing and out walks this fan dressed as Santa Claus? What did the fans do? They started chucking snowballs at him which quickly escalated to beer bottles and several other things. And it is that story which goes down as one of the primary examples why Philadelphia sports fans are also often known as the worst sports fans in the U.S., even worse than Raider fans, if you believe it or not. Like, I looked it up. It's on the internet. It must be true, right? So... But Philadelphia is known for this, right? There, there's so many different stories of them just being brutal when their teams are horrible and then being a, a very bad fan base when their teams are bad. Now they're probably happy this year because their football team's good. But regardless, there, there's an irony in this as well. If, if you know the nickname for the city, Philadelphia, it comes from what the word actually means. Philadelphia is, comes from two words, brother and love. So the city of brotherly love is the place of great hate often for others. And it's this irony in the city known as the exact same thing in this ancient city of Philadelphia that we find in irony this morning. The city filled with supposedly brotherly love, but the Christians there are coming under intense persecution and hate. And it is not a a great place to be a follower of Jesus. It's not a place filled with love for them. And so would you join me as we read in Revelation chapter three, starting this morning at verse seven, it says this. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia writes, the words of the Holy One, the true one, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door, which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. 
Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say they are Jews and are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. Because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. I am coming soon. Hold fast what you have so that no one may seize your crown. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it. And I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from God out of heaven and my, new, my own new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the spirit says to the churches. Well, each week we've been walking through and the outline is there for you. We've been looking at kind of the five similarities that each of these seven sections have. And so the first similarity, which we see in verse, verse seven is the opening, the Christ title. What does Jesus call himself? And this morning we see three different titles and there's a significance here, a background, which we saw in verse nine, that their primary persecution that these believers are coming under are from those of Jewish background right, who say they are Jews but are not, meaning they, they are not actually the people of God because they have rejected Jesus. And so in light of that and that their persecution is primarily from those of Jewish background, all three of these identifications of Jesus have a rich Old Testament background and heritage to them to show that they actually are the true people of God and that they are those following the Messiah that has been promised. Jesus first identifies himself as the Holy One. The Holy One, this was a commonly used expression in the Old Testament to refer to Yahweh, to God. God identifies himself as the Holy One. And it's also regularly specified with Israel. In fact, in the book of Isaiah, which is regularly referenced and thought about, so which, which Jesus is probably referencing back to, the phrase Holy One of Israel occurs 25 times in the book of Isaiah alone. And so God, by saying the Holy One of Israel, this Holy One, he's saying, I am he, this Holy One of Israel is is Jesus himself, contrary to what these other people have been persecuting them and have saying is not true. So he is the Holy One. Secondly, he identifies himself as the true one. The true one, this likely has a double connotation to this idea of being true. First, he's identifying himself most likely as the true Messiah, that, that there was warnings that false messiahs would come, but they were waiting for the one, the true Messiah. And by Jesus saying, I am the true one, he's saying, I am that promised Messiah that all of the Old Testament was pointing to. The idea of true also has this idea of faithfulness as well. So Jesus is saying, I am the true Messiah and I will be true to my people as well. I will be faithful to you in the midst of your hardship and persecution and suffering. He is the true one. And thirdly, he identifies himself as the one who has the key of David, who has the key of David. Now that's a unique phrase. And he's referencing back to the book of Isaiah here, specifically Isaiah 22, 22. And the quote is this. Now I will place on his shoulder the key of the house of David. He shall open and none shall shut and he shall shut and none shall open. Now, this, this quote actually comes from a very little-known story in Isaiah 22. I'm sure your favorite Bible character is the guy named Shebna, right? 
Yeah, if you're like me, you read that this week and you're like, wait, who is that? I'm like, I'm a pastor. I have no idea who that is. Who's, who's Shebna? Well, Shebna shows up in the book of Isaiah. It's during King Hezekiah's rule. And Shebna is an official in, in the palace of King Hezekiah. And he's likely the highest ranking official. So he's not just some guy who's like around in the background, but think of him kind of like how you'd have the chief of staff in the White House. That is Shebna. He's the guy who, who gets everything done for the king. So he's an important person, but he's, not the king. And there was a clear delineation between the king and everyone else in Israel. But Shebna had pride in his heart. And so Shebna actually went down to where the burial places for the kings were, and he made himself a gravestone to be buried with the other kings of Israel. Kind of a a prideful, cocky move, right? Like, oh, this is where I belong. I belong with the kings when I die. And so the story that, that Isaiah 22 has is, is this quote is coming up from, this is part of the prophecy that he actually wouldn't be buried there, that he would be removed from his position, die in disgrace because of his pride and be replaced by a, na- a man named Eliakim who would come and replace him. And that's this context for the story, but, but it, it's helpful too to know their, their context and culture for keys. See, when we think of, of keys, they're very small, quick things, right? Most of us probably have five, 10. I don't know, some of you have like 40 keys. I don't know what you're trying to, it's like a, a power move, like the number of keys you guys carry around sometimes. Like, like man, you got all these keys, right? And they're very, they're very portable, very easy to have. Well, in ancient time, in ancient culture, there's a few unique things about keys. Keys were normally between six and 24 inches long. They didn't slide in your pocket. Right? A key was a large thing. That's why in Isaiah, it talks about putting the key on his shoulder, right? Because this would have maybe made something of wood or maybe even of a heavy metal. And so it would have weighed something. It wouldn't fit in a pocket. It wasn't just something you could dangle around your waist. It was a large thing. And because it was a large thing, it carried a symbol of authority and prominence with it as well. Also, back in that time, in most doors that had a lock, there was one key. There was one key. I know my father-in-law's a locksmith. He would have been out of job back in the day, right? There was no duplicating keys, right? There was one key. And so whoever held that key held great power because they could open and shut when no one else could. And Jesus is making reference to himself and what he is opening and shutting is the kingdom of God. And he's saying, I alone possess the authority to open the kingdom of God. And when I take the key and open it, no one can shut it. Jesus is saying, I have power over the kingdom of heaven. I am the Messiah. I have come to establish the kingdom of God in this world. When Jesus opens it, no one can shut it. The second part, the second outline that we have here is the commendation. What are the good that Jesus sees in the church that he commends them for? Now, this passage is unique. And if you've been journeying through us, you'll, you'll notice how it kind of almost feels a little clunky. And the reason this is, is because three times during the commendation, Jesus kind of interrupts himself. So if you've ever like started telling a story and gotten sidetracked and went somewhere and then came back to the story, just be like, hey, look, Jesus does it. Like, why can I not do it, right? This is, his guy. Jesus commends them. Then he gets so excited that, that he, he interrupts himself twice it's seen by the phrase, behold, behold. He's excited to tell them the blessings that either he has given them or will give to this church. And so when we put them together and kind of pull out these other interjections of Jesus, we see the commendation for them scattered throughout. The first, they are those who have little power in verse eight. 
They're not in a political position. Maybe there's a small number of them. We don't know exactly what, but they're, they're not a powerful, prominent group, but they've kept to the word. They've kept Jesus's word. They have not denied his name. Later on, we see that they have patiently endured suffering. In verse 10, you've kept my word about patience, endurance. They have held fast to Jesus. They've endured even amongst trial and tribulation, even though they were in a position of very little power. And Jesus commends them for it. So let's now look at these interjections because as we've been walking through, these are unique to this church alone. And so they're significant in what Jesus promises. This first interjection that he has in the commendation is in verse eight. Behold, I have set before you an open door, which no one is able to shut. As we just mentioned, that goes back obviously to what Jesus just identified himself as and is is a, a metaphor for the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God that Jesus has opened to them and no one can take away their salvation. Jesus in the gospels referred to himself as the door or he is the way. This idea that through Jesus alone is salvation. Through him alone, one can be saved and no one can stop who Jesus has called to him who's walking with Jesus. No one can remove their salvation from them. And Jesus reminds himself of this. It's also, you know, at, at play here, this idea that no one's able to shut, that, that they cannot kick you out. Because in this time, Jewish believers, who most likely that's who he's writing to here, Jewish believers, once they believed in Jesus, would have most of the time stayed in the same synagogue and continued to worship there. But they would have worshiped Jesus in the synagogue along with Yahweh. But what has happened is those who were of Jewish background started kicking them out. They would isolate those who believed in Jesus and kick them out of the church. They would shut the door in their faces. And these people had most likely been forcibly removed from their places of worship. And Jesus saying, but the door to the kingdom of heaven is still open to you. Your church door may have slammed in your face, but the kingdom of heaven is open to you because it it is not theirs to remove. Only I have the power to do so. The second interjection, again, is seen with the word behold in verse 9. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say they are Jews but are not. That's exactly the same phrase that was seen in the church to Smyrna in the second letter. And it's not an anti-Semitic phrase, but it's going back to the theology of the New Testament, that those who are the people of God are the true Israel, not just those of a certain ethnic descent. And what is he saying of them? That he will make them come and bow down at your feet and they will learn that I have loved you. This bowing down of of Israel to God's true people is seen throughout the Old Testament and prophesied. Likely here, it's a reference to Isaiah chapter 60, verse 14, which says this, the sons of those who afflicted you shall come bending low to you and all who despised you shall bow down at your feet. They shall call you the city of the Lord, the Zion of the Holy One of Israel. You see, it's combining that Holy One of Israel phrase, which showed up earlier with this idea of bowing down. It's anticipation that people of God will recognize who the true followers of Jesus are. And so he's reminding them, hey, you may be persecuted in this life, but you'll be vindicated by Jesus one day. And those who are now persecuting you will bow down one day and recognize their wrongdoing, that they rejected the Messiah that you rightfully accepted in this world. The third interjection is seen in the middle of verse 10. It says this, I will keep you, because you've kept my word about endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to those who dwell on the earth. I am coming soon. 
This idea of Jesus's protection from the greater trial and tribulations and suffering that the people are about to commence under. This idea of, of Jesus keeping them doesn't mean that he's removing them from suffering or he's pulling them out of suffering, but he's protecting them in the face of suffering. That word keep only occurs one other time in the New Testament and it helps us understand that keep means protect, not simply remove from. In John chapter 17, verse 15, Jesus says this, speaking to his disciples, us who would follow him afterwards. He says, I do not ask that you would take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. This idea of Jesus protecting those who are his, even in the midst of rising suffering as we look forward to his return and to his coming. And Jesus is so enthused by this church. He's so thankful for what they've done. He can't help himself, but promise his blessings and, and what they can hold on to in the future as he commends them for what they've done. Thirdly, we see a complaint. What is the complaint that Jesus has with the churches? Well, this one stands out like the second one we looked at, Smyrna. There's none. Right? There is no complaint here to this church. There's no but this. There's no but you've forgotten this. There is no complaint that Jesus has to this church in Philadelphia. The correction then is seen in a positive way. It's not a correcting of a behavior, but encouragement to continue in verse 11. Hold fast to what you have. Hold fast, continue this path that you've been down. Remember that there is this open door to the kingdom of heaven that no one can shut. Remember that you will be vindicated by God, even though you're persecuted now. Remember, you will be protected by God, even in the midst of persecution and suffering now. So in light of that, hold fast, continue what you are doing and hold fast to Jesus in the face of pain and suffering. The consequence is the fifth thing. The fifth part of the outline that we see in each of these passages. And like before, there's a negative, what happens if they don't hold fast? And then the positive, what happens if they do? The negative, if they don't, it says so that no one may seize your crown. We've already seen, if you've been walking through us, this crown imagery is pulling from athletic imagery that a winner would achieve a victory crown. And he's saying, you've, you've got this victory crown coming to you if you hold fast, hold fast so that it will not be removed, so that no one will take it from you. And then we have two positives, two positive consequences that if they are able to hold fast. Verse 12, the one who conquers, the one who overcomes, the one who has victory first, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never, he, never shall he go out of it. So his first consequence is that we will be made pillars in the temple of my God. Now, this idea of pillar is like it is still in our nomenclature today, a, a position of prominence and a prominent place of authority, right? If, if someone is a prominent member in Morgan Hill, we would call them what? A pillar in our community, right? That, that vernacular is still in our phrase. And that's what Jesus is saying, that I will make you a prominent place, but it also is a permanent place in the temple of God. Now, the temple of God was the holiest site for Jews, Right? It was the place where God's presence dwells. And now Jesus is saying those who believe in Jesus as the Messiah have a permanent place in this new temple of God where you will be with God. His presence will be with you for eternity. He says there also that this idea of permanence, that I will never make him go out of it. It's not only talking about permanence, but there's a quite likely reference here as well to some of the city's history. Philadelphia as a major city in AD 17 was totally destroyed by an earthquake, 
right? As Californians, we can kind of get that. We're like, oh yeah, we know what that's like. We had a good shaker about a month ago, right? Like imagine the architecture from 2000 years ago. It had caused ruins. And so what had to happen is the entire city, basically everyone had to move outside the city walls and camp outside while the city itself was rebuilt. And so when Jesus is referencing, I will never move you out, they've they've had in their history had to move out while things have been rebuilt. And Jesus is saying, you will never have to leave the permanence of this place like you one time had to leave your city. This is this permanent place with God. The second consequence in a positive way, if we overcome, if we have victory, is this thing about naming. Third, it says this in the end of verse 12, excuse me, I'll write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from the God out of heaven and my own new name. Now these references play together because in the ancient world, names were commonly actually inscribed and written on pillars. Pillars of prominence that were put in places of worship or in ancient architecture that they were named and they were named in honor of things. And Jesus says that on us, there will be three names written. That first, this reminder that we belong to God, right? That we belong, the name of my God, we belong to God. That we are people of the new kingdom. That's this new Jerusalem, the open door that's been given to us. That we belong to the kingdom of God. And ultimately, lots of that we belong to Jesus, my new own name. What is that new name? You'll find out someday because none of us know, right? But it's this idea of naming something three different times, this emphatic reminder that these believers belong to God forever. God is writing his name on them, my name, the name of my kingdom, and the name of Jesus, which no one yet knows. This idea that we belong to God, kind of like how your kids will write their name on their stuffed animal, Right? This is mine. Jesus looks at us and he writes his name on us and says, they are mine forever. This city as well, Philadelphia culturally had been renamed twice in the, in the decade or the few decades before this. And it was a great honor to be renamed. After that earthquake that I just talked about, the city was renamed Neo Caesarea in light of Caesar's help in rebuilding the city. And just a little bit before this book was written in AD 70 or so, the, the city was renamed Flavia in honor of the current Caesar as well. And it was a, a great thing, a high honor to have your city renamed after something like this. So they would have seen this as a city that had been renamed twice in the last hundred years. It was a great honor that God would give on them a new name and write his name on them. So three lessons. What are three lessons that we can learn from this church in Philadelphia for us today? The first is this. Attacks on the church, attacks on us as Christians can come from outside and inside the church. Attacks on us can come from outside and inside the church. We've seen how for a lot of these churches, the pressure on them was from the world, from from the cultures, from, from the things around them because they were in a Roman world that despised Jesus, that didn't recognize this idea of having one God. But here as in Smyrna as well, the pressure comes from other people who would have said they were God followers. They feared God. They revered the scripture that was given to them at that time. Yet that's where the attacks on them we're coming. See, it's, it's common for us in our world and where we live in this area to assume that, yes, we will have attacks on us, on our faith, on the way we live from those who are outside the world. 
who are outside of the church, that, that we expect that. That's how as Christians we should live, knowing that our lives, not because we're jerks or antagonistic, but simply because we're living differently as God has called us to, will stand out. And there may be people who won't understand But in our time and in our world as it was back then, we need to be cautious and careful recognizing that attacks on us, attacks on Christianity can just as well come from inside the church as they can from outside the church as well. Don't assume that because someone says they're a Christian or went to a certain college or has a certain degree or calls themselves a pastor, that they are speaking the truth of God. I was reminded this this week, I was scrolling through social media, and I came across a video of someone. I'm not even going to mention their name. I I don't know this person personally, but I have a lot of friends in common with them because they actually went to the same very conservative, Bible-believing college that I do. And the video that I saw reminded me of some other times I've seen his videos, which have gone very viral across parts of the internet, talking about Jesus struggling with his sin of racism, talking about how Jesus truly wasn't God. People just thought he was God how scripture is this old outdated book that you can't actually trust anymore. And what is this title on this thing? It's pastor so-and-so, right? And if you're scrolling through, you see these messages and you're like, oh, I didn't realize Jesus wasn't this. I didn't realize I can't trust. I didn't realize, and he calls himself a pastor. He would identify as a Christian. Jesus said, beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravenous wolves as they were under attack from people who would have claimed the name of God and filled it, we must remind ourselves that we too could very well come under attack from people who claim the name of Jesus, who claim to be Christians in our world. Now, I want us to make sure that we're, the call there is not just to be suspicious of every single person. It's not to spend your life online trying to correct other people's theological mistakes on your keyboard and correct them and make sure they know how wrong they are. But the correction is that we must take every message we hear, everything that we hear from our lives, from people we know and from those who we don't know, and measure it through the lens of Scripture. That we must allow Scripture to inform and guide our lives, not the voices that we hear, no matter how, how, what titles they have or background they have. You must take everything I say and put it through the lens of scripture. I am not perfect. I may say things that don't line up with scripture. You shouldn't just vaguely open your mind and believe everything anyone ever tells you. God's word is what we stand on. It is his truth that guides us. And in these times, we need to make sure that when all of these messages are coming, that we know there are many who claim the name of Jesus, but won't live for Jesus and won't guide us into the truth of scripture. And we must be ready for these attacks on our faith from both outside but also inside the church. The second lesson that we can learn from the church in Philadelphia is this. Jesus doesn't promise us comfort, but he does promise us protection. Jesus doesn't promise you, if you're a follower of Jesus, he doesn't promise you comfort in this life, but he does promise you protection. Again, he says that he will keep them from this tribulation, meaning that he will keep them safe from it, not keeping them from any trouble or trials or tribulation that is to come. There's, uh, there's certain theological systems that are well known in, in the Christian world that talk about, and it's almost like this, the suffering of our lives can be removed. And this isn't prosperity theology. Some of it is specifically an eschatology that, that we're just pulled out and we don't have to go through any pain, any hardship in following Jesus. Now there's lots of people who I love and respect who believe certain things along these lines. The problem isn't that, th- that theology isn't biblical. There very well could be a rapture where the church is pulled out early. That's not what I hold to. 
that's a perfectly fine biblical view to hold to. But the problem is sometimes the theology that we then implement into our lives from it, like I don't have to prepare for hardship because Jesus is just gonna pull me out of it when it gets really bad. I remember seeing this years ago because man, if you ever wanna know the truth about what people believe, just go talk to junior hires because they don't have a filter. Right? And so I remember I was talking, I don't remember which passage in the New Testament. This is many, many years ago. And I was talking about how Christians, we need the very similar thing. We need to be ready to suffer for Jesus. We need to be clear in what we believe and not allow these attacks. And I remember a kid, a really smart kid, raised his hand in the back and said, Yeah, but we're already going to be taken away, so we don't have to worry about any of this, right? And I thought, He just said what so many in the church believe. Right? I don't have to really prepare for suffering. I don't have to really be on guard because I'm just going to be pulled out of it. I'll never have to actually prepare myself. But so much of the thrust of the New Testament, so much of the thrust of these sermons that we've looked at from Jesus is not, you're going to be pulled out, but hang on. Remember the church at Smyrna? Jesus is like, I know what you've endured and it's going to get worse. Some of you are about to start dying. Right? It wasn't this idea of being pulled out for our faith. It's hold on to Jesus even closer in the midst of hardship. See, in the midst of our world, we must not expect removal of pain and suffering from our lives, but we do need to learn to expect to lean on Jesus for his comfort, for his provision, for his protection, because life will be hard. And following Jesus, there will be times in your life where you will not be able to do it on your own, where you will have to rely on Jesus. And he will protect you then. He will be there for you then. But we cannot believe and tell ourselves these lies that, oh, if I follow Jesus, it will all go fine and there'll be comfort. No, he's saying, you you followed me and hold on because it's gonna continue to be hard, but I will protect you. The third lesson from this church in Philadelphia is this, the greatest reward for us, the greatest reward in heaven is Jesus. The greatest reward, well, what is that thing that as followers of Jesus, what do we have to look forward to? What's the promise, the greatest thing that we can hold on to when we look to the future that Jesus encourages this church with, that he encourages us with? It's that Jesus is the great reward for our faith. There is such a huge misunderstanding amongst so many of us on what heaven is, right? Such a huge misunderstanding. We have so, so little thoughts of heaven and what, and what heaven actually is. Most of our thoughts about heaven reflect comic books rather than scripture, right? We, we see images like this where the guy's like, I wish I brought a magazine. And we're like, that's what heaven's like, right? You get your angels, you sit on a cloud. If you put a little harp in there, right? It would be perfect, right? Like, man, heaven, for some of us in, in our theology and what we think about heaven, it kind of sounds like, I don't know, like sitting at an antique show or like a grandma's house with too many trinkets around where we're afraid to break anything. And we're like, that kind of sounds boring. Like, I don't like playing music. I like when Kayla plays music. I can't play music. I don't want to play music for eternity on a harp. And you're like, well, heaven doesn't seem, heaven doesn't seem that great sometimes with these parameters that we've put in. Heaven is so much more than our understanding of it. I love how it's put in 1 Corinthians 2. But as it is written, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. So you take your greatest joys, your greatest pleasures, the moments of highest fun and enjoyment in this life, and heaven is that multiplied beyond your imagination. 
It is not this place of monotonous singing and monotonous, oh my gosh, how long do we have to do this? I should have brought something to read. It is the place of fullest joy, fullest contentment that you have ever thought and then beyond some because you can't even imagine how great it will be. And the greatest joy of all that the scriptures promise us, that Jesus promises this church is that we will be with Jesus. The greatest joy of all, so much of our talk of heaven is how much gold there will be and the jewels and all of that. The biblical focus on heaven is that's, that's where God is. That's where Jesus is. Like the rest of the details we'll find out one day, but the thing to hold on to is that's where Jesus himself lies. See, he, he's referencing, as we talked about in this idea of us being pillars in the temple of God, the most holy sites for the Jewish people, the tabernacle, as, we, as you see early in the Old Testament, that's where God dwells. Later on, when the temple is built, that's the dwelling place of God, this unique place where God is with man. And he's saying, what now as Christians, we will be permanently in the temple. You will dwell with God forever. At the end of the book, Revelation 21, 3, says this, and I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. What is the primary motivation for following Jesus? The primary motivation for enduring pain, hardship and suffering in this life, it's Jesus. It's that we will be with him forever. That's our motivation as Christians. It's not some other reward. It's not gold one day. It's not the praises we'll get. It's that we will be with Jesus one day. See, our end goal shapes our motivation for living. You see this in every area of life. If you're in school and you have this huge goal of a college you wanna get to, a career, it motivates you to do things that otherwise you wouldn't do. If you're in your career and you have certain objectives you wanna hit, you will work harder and longer. It motivates you to get to a certain place. If you're a parent and you have an end goal in mind for what you want your kids to be like one day, you'll parent with that in mind and you will have greater patience and wisdom and discipline because you have a greater goal in mind that motivates you. What is that greater goal in mind for us as Christians? It's Jesus, that we will one day be with him, that we will be with him. And to this church in Philadelphia that was going through so much pain and hardship and trials, Jesus reminds them, one day you will be with me. The kingdom of heaven, because of Jesus, has been opened to you. No one can shut it. And one day you will dwell with God and God will dwell with you. And I don't know what your motivation for life is, your motivation for following after Jesus is, your motivation for being at church this morning is, but the greatest motivation to endure, to withstand the trials, the temptations of life is that if you are a Christian, God promises that one day his dwelling will be with you, that in heaven, we will have perfect communion with Jesus. Our sin will be gone because Jesus has paid for it on the cross. It will be forever removed and you have perfect communion with God just as you were meant when you were created. That is the primary goal of the Christian life, to be with Jesus. God, we thank you for your promises that one day we will be with you. God, I pray that our hearts would be so captivated by 
by your majesty, your glory, that this thought of God dwelling with us, that us permanently being in the presence of God forever would so motivate our lives to surrender to obedience to whatever you would have for us. And God, we thank you that while we are still on this side of eternity, that you are the God who protects us, who in our troubles and our tribulations, the hardships of life that are certain to come for every single one of us, you guide us, you defend us, and you protect us. And we praise and worship you this morning. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening. Continue the conversation with us on social media. Never miss a message and subscribe to our podcast on iTunes.